Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Good morning. I feel like Russell didn't tell me that I was closing off the sermon series. That's, that, I don't know if he did that on purpose or if I just forgot. Um... Well, uh, if this is your first time with us, uh, I'm sure you've heard it already, but we love saying it. We're a community of faith that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's always room at the table. And that's something that I've come to love about our community here at Hope Brooklyn. As Russell said, my name is Joshua Cepeda. Actually, let me give you a little bit about my full name, as those who know me well know. I'm uh, one of the resident Brooklynites in the community. I was, uh, raised in Mid- yeah! I was raised in Midwood, but to be truthful, be truthful, I wasn't born in Brooklyn. I was born on 102nd Street and 1st Avenue. Yes, on 102nd Street, 1st Avenue. My mother gave birth to me in the ambulance um, in Spanish Harlem. And we lived in a project building at the time, and the 13th floor is where our apartment was. So by the time my mother got down to the first floor, it was ready to go. So I came out actually on the street uh, in the ambulance. And we lived there till I was about four years old, and then my father got a job as a superintendent in Brooklyn, in Midwood, and that's where I grew up, in Midwood, uh, kind of the crux of Midwood, Flatbush, and Ditmas Park. And then uh, my father got another job in Bay Ridge, Shore Road, and we moved there from when I was 17 till through college. But to be truthful, I spent all my time in, uh, in Sunset Park, and everyone uh, knew me as the guy who was uh, into breakdancing and rapping because I fell in love with hip hop in Sunset. All my friends were b-boys and MCs and we would travel and go uh, do shows and do concerts and uh, do open mics. And it's also where I fell in love with the gospel. These friends that were into hip hop were also Christians and they showed me God's tremendous love for me. And at the same time, it's also where I fell in love with my wife in Sunset Park, who's a Sunset Park resident. She's actually a real deal Brooklynite, real deal Brooklynite. <laughs> And uh, funny side note, like I said a little bit about my full name, uh, my full name is actually Pedro Josue Cepeda. I'm named after my father. My father's name is Pedro. My middle name is Josue, which is Spanish for Joshua. And not many people knew that until my actual wedding day when uh, even our, it was funny, even our pastor who married us didn't know that. And so uh, he actually introduced me that way. And it was like a shock to everyone in the room because they had no idea that I had this super Spanish name. But, uh, but yeah, so but they call me Joshua because nobody growing up could say Josue. And so I was embarrassed so many times by that name. I just told him, call me Josh, leave it at that. And so uh, I'm so excited to be here. It's such a privilege for me to, uh, to share with you uh, the story of Jesus and to close out the way of Jesus' uh, sermon series. Um, for me, this has been an interesting time with work and family and just preparing for this. And I really believe that God has given me something to share out of the abundance of his love for me. And I hope that that ministers to you this morning. Uh, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning that uh, you love us and that one thing, one thread that, pers- that goes through everything that you've shown us, all these practices that we've been looking at and, and uh, experimenting with and examining, God, and, and just your entire way is built on that one premise, that you love us, that no greater love is there than this, than you laid your life down for those whom you love, your friends. And so, God, I pray that this morning we would know that love that that love would permeate all the practices that we do as a community of faith, that wherever we are at work or at home or with our families, love would motivate us above all things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, I'm going to ask for your forgiveness uh, because those in the teaching community know that I struggle with 
creating slides. I have a, Russell laughs because he knows, I have a hard time organizing my thoughts to the point where I'm like, I like that, I'm gonna let people read that. I don't like that, that, that scares me. The idea of writing something down and people reading it and being like, yeah, that makes sense. So I usually don't come up with slides. I try because I know it's a great uh, visual medium, but unfortunately today I failed once again, so there will be no slides. But if you have your Bible with you, if you have your phone, you'd be more encouraged to take it out. We're gonna be reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, reading from 12 through 19. I have my Bible with me. I'm gonna be reading it out loud. If you do not have that, you can uh, listen along with us as I read out loud. John 12, starting from verse 12 to 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been ran about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. As I said uh, before, and as Russell said, that we've been in a sermon series called The Way of Jesus. And what we've been doing with that has been examining these practices that produce an awareness of Jesus in our life. And it's been built around this uh, one claim Jesus makes, a pretty bold and exclusive claim he makes in the New Testament. But it's a claim that we've come to accept and it's defining our, our community this year. Come to me, he says, learn from me and you'll find rest for your souls. Really bold, really exclusive claim. But what we found week after week as we looked at practice after practice, Jesus backs up this claim. And what he claims is that according to him, our life, our way of doing things has not produced rest. It has not produced the very things our hearts are searching for. But the other part of this claim is that only he, him alone, can give us that rest. That's the exclusivity of his claim. That not only is our life restless, which many of us can attest, our life is restless at times. Sometimes it's long seasons of rest, periods of rest. Sometimes we always feel like we're coming back to this restlessness. But the exclusivity of his claim is that only he can give us the very things our hearts are searching for. And if you haven't heard the sermons, I encourage you to go back. Because what we've noticed as a community is that week after week, sermon after sermon, Jesus offers up to us a life or a way of living that is more life-giving than any we've yet to experience. He offers, us, offers up for us a life that produces hope, that tells us to lay down burdens we were never meant to carry, that gives us strength and gives us grace and wisdom. And so this morning I have the privilege of finishing that series, and I know it's actually say continuing that series, but finishing this series as I look at Jesus' response to a human problem, a problem that I learned of uh, actually in high school uh, in English class, called the problem of power. Like I said, I first encountered this, this literary and, and uh, motif and theme, the problem of power, when I was in English class as a junior in high school. My teacher had given us an assignment to pick a literary motif or theme and then create this whole project around it. And so I chose the problem of power, not because I was you know, so hyped to write about it or I knew it full hand, but because of a song I was listening to at the time. 
my brother had just uh, updated his iPod, and I don't know if you could still do this. I remember there was a time where if you hooked up your iPod to someone else's computer, and as long as their music was Apple, like they downloaded from Apple, you could put it on your iPod. I don't know if you could still do that, but you used to be able to do that. And so my brother had tons of music that he would get, and so often, like, Every weekend, you know, he would get more music, and so uh, when I was a junior, he had gotten hold of Nas's 2001 album, Stillmatic. And if you're familiar with Nas's career, you know that Nas came into the hip-hop industry, came into the game with an album called Illmatic, which became an instant classic, certified him as one of the best rappers of all time. It told, uh, it was an incredible story, I mean, he was an incredible storyteller, and it just cemented him in the industry as someone of power and influence. And so 10 years later, he makes this album called Stillmatic, where he feels the need to present himself as still that guy, I'm still that person. And uh, like any story we tell, there's always a reason why we want to tell that story. I believe that was this one song, a song called You're the Man, where he actually explains the kind of impetus, the whole birthplace of, of this desire to come out and say, I'm still, I'm still Illmatic. And this is how he starts the song. He says, they plan was to knock me out the top of the game, but I understand the truth is all lame. I hold cannons that shoot balls of flame right in their mouth, and I called my name, Nas, too real, Nas, true king, it's however you feel, go ahead, you swing. And he continues this song and that theme, and as you first hear it, it just sounds like every other rap song that you hear, because there's this common theme in hip-hop where it's about bravado and competitiveness and showing that you're the guy. I always get this image when I hear rappers do this, of them sitting like on a throne and untouchable, like people try to come near them, and it's like, you know, they just can't touch them, you know? It's, it's impossible. But if you know what's going on in Nas's life around this time, this isn't that. This isn't a generalization or a fictitious kind of image of himself. Nas isn't talking about a king on a throne who's triumphant. He's actually telling the story of a king at war. Nas at this point in time is actually, his, his career has actually been threatened. Uh, Jay-Z had performed this song in Hot 97's uh, Summer Jam. The first time he ever performed it, no one knew he recorded it. It was a song called The Takeover. And in that song, he calls out Nas. And it's this big deal. Everyone's shocked and, and in awe because Nas is Nas. And so it leads Nas to write his most infamous diss track, Ether. And so when you hear those first two lines and he starts the song off, they plan was to knock me out the top of the game. He's talking about this plan of creating this song and performing it in front of New York, you know, in front of everybody, in front of all people of influence. And then when he says, I hold cannons that shoot balls of flame, he's talking about his own song, Ether. He's talking about a king at war. This is not a king at peace. He's having to defend his own credibility, his name, his influence. But it's not just a king at war externally. The song continues, and now reveals he's a king at war internally. This issue with, with Jay-Z and, and others, he starts to say, has brought him great conflict. He's, he's looking back at these 10 years, and he's like, these guys used to idolize me, he says in the song. You used to idolize me. You came for me for record deals, and now you forgot me? He goes, you wanted to be with me, hang out with me, always be around me. You know, he's kind of shocked and, and broken by the fact that people are coming for him. It's like he didn't anticipate this, or he didn't expect it. You know, he's internally conflicted. And what's interesting to me the most, and what made me want to write this paper on the problem of power, is what Nas says at the end of that verse. He comes to this realization, he makes this confession. He says, it's funny, I once said, if I ever make a record, I take a check and put some away for a rainy day to make my exit. But look at me now, I'm 10 years deep since the project bench would crack in my socks sleep. I never asked to be top of rap, elite, just a ghetto child trying to learn the pass of the street. Nas confesses something that most people in the music industry never confess. They did not want the fame, the fortune, and the power. Nas confesses that as a kid, all he wanted was to elevate his circumstance. Music, a rap career, was just a means to elevate himself and get out and navigate the difficulties. He never wanted the power. He never wanted any of this. He never wanted to be a person 
at war. He never wanted to be uh, at war externally or internally. And what Nas reveals and what I came to understand is a common theme in all the stories we tell. It's everywhere in every movie and every book is the problem of power, that power, a life of power is a life where you're never at rest. To have power is to give up rest. Because as Nas notes, eventually you have to protect that power or eventually you become so uh, consumed where you believe that that power is what you need to be successful, to have the things that you long for. There's no uh, greater movie, and I'm gonna, again, forgive me all the movie buffs and pop culture enthusiasts in here. I didn't see The Godfather until this year. Did not watch it until this year. And um, I don't know, I was on this kick. I wanted to watch all these movies that I'd never seen. And I feel like there's no story arc better to explain this problem of power than, than Michael Corleone's story arc. I mean, including in The, in the Godfather 1, 2, and yes, 3 as well. Don't get me wrong, I'm not a big fan of three. Um, but I think three actually proves it the most. Because in three, you meet an old Michael Corleone, a man who's trying to go back to his roots. If you remember in the beginning of the whole Godfather story, he doesn't want to be involved in this life. He's been distanced from this life. His family has kept him away. He doesn't want to be a part of it. It's not what he wants. And in the Godfather three, as an old man, he's trying to return to those roots, distance himself as much as he can from this life. But as he learns, and as we learn as an audience watching his arc, is that the problem of power continues to follow him. There's always those who are coming after him, who want to hurt him, even if he's not trying to do anything to them. And unfortunately, he never gets to rest. He's always having to deal with the death of a loved one or the difficult decisions of having power. And so power is a theme that you don't have to look hard to see or find in any of our, in our stories, any of the music we tell, movies or books. And it's present even in the passage that we read, but not with Jesus. In the passage we read, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. And if you know, this is a, there was a one time a year where all the Jews would travel, make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for a great feast. And Jesus had done this in his ministry three times. This is the third. And so everyone's traveling to Jerusalem, Jesus included. And among the people in, that, uh, in Jerusalem are the people who had just seen Jesus a few days ago raise a man from the dead. This is such a big deal that there was talk all over town about this man, Jesus, who raises people from the dead. So big that when they heard Jesus was coming, they ran to meet him. And then just come to meet him or curious, they, came to, they ran to declare him as their king. The first thing we realize about this crowd is that they want a king. And if you're familiar with the biblical story, if you're familiar with, with the Bible, you know that this has actually been a common theme among the people of God. They've always wanted a king for themselves. It first shows up in the Old Testament, in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8. They come to the prophet Samuel and they tell him, we want a king. They demand that God give them a king, that they could be like the other nations, the rest of the world. They saw the rest of the world and, and, and all the things that they had, their power and everything. We want to be like that. We want a king for ourselves. And Samuel says something interesting. He warns them that if they want a king, their life will never be at peace. He says, kings, take your sons and send them to war. Kings, take your daughters and make them their slaves. Kings, take your land for themselves. Kings, do what they want with you. He goes, there could come a day, he goes, well, because of your king, you'll cry out, you'll restlessly cry out, and I won't hear you. It's this really scary thing. You'd think everybody would be like, hold up, I don't want that. No, they still want it. And God gives them a king. And you see the story arc amongst the people of God where they're constantly dealing with these kings who seem good for a while and then get corrupted. They seem, things seem like they're going well and then they, get this, and they break down. And this crowd in Jesus' day has not changed one bit from, that, uh, from their ancestors. They want a king as well. They desire a king who can give them everything that they want. And this is something that happens in Jesus' life a lot, actually. 
Two times before, uh, Jesus uh, feeds thousands of people and they start following him. And Jesus turns around and he rebukes them. And he tells them the only reason they follow him, the only reason they want him to be their king is because he fills their bellies, he tells them. And they get offended by this, they leave. Another time, he's performing miracles and tells us that the crowds come to find him, to make him their king, and he disappears. He's been eluding this idea. He's been rejecting it. But here, ironically, he doesn't reject it. Jesus continues entering into the city, entering into their praise. Now, let's not get deceived, fam. These same people, spoiler alert, are going to be yelling, crucify Jesus in a few days. These same people who were crying out to him to be their king, who wanted him as their king, who saw this great miracle, are going to turn on him and yell, crucify him. They haven't changed. The only thing different is Jesus' response. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't turn away. He enters in to their praise. The other thing, the other group that we see is the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, we've talked about a lot of times, and they're a religious group that was so um, consumed with, uh, with uh, well, they had just this problem with Jesus because Jesus was an affront to everything that they had ever uh, established, all the order they had created. The Pharisees were a religious group who were, in effect, the leaders of their people. The people turned to them for wisdom and instruction, and they provided ways in which they could live their life honoring God, religious practices that they could do and keep. And here comes Jesus with a whole nother way, a way that's contrary to theirs, a way that says that they don't need to do these, these religious practices that they've been doing. They could follow his way, and his way would connect them with their father, his father. This offended the Pharisees, of course. They're losing their power and control. And Jesus actually tells them that at one point, that what they love isn't that they're leading people. What they love is that they, they get to sit at the best places. They, get, they love people coming to them. They're vain, and they're greedy, and uh, they're manipulative, he tells them. And so they already have it out for Jesus. But on top of that, we find out here that they, uh, well, it's not here, actually, the reason why they say that phrase, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's pointless or give up, you know, they've gone after him, is because right before this passage, you find out that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees actually plotted up, were trying to plot a way to kill Lazarus because they felt that if they could destroy Lazarus or get rid of him, then they could ruin Jesus' reputation. Jesus would not be this great person. They foresaw that if people heard this, they would follow him. And sure enough, they couldn't, they couldn't stop the masses. It went viral. They had no way of stopping this story. And so Jesus became this man who raises people from the dead. And so here they're kind of hopeless. It's pointless. The world, they say, everybody's going after him. But they're not going to be hopeless for long. As we know later on, Judas ends up betraying Jesus. And here they find their plan, their way to regain control of the people by blaspheming or telling lies about Jesus and getting the people to desire his crucifixion rather than he be set free. And so what you see in this story is two groups of people that are struggling with the very same problem that I've been talking about, this problem of power. The Jews, the Jewish people are longing for a king because they want what other nations have. They see the power that they have. They see the success, the peace, the money, all these things, and they want those things as well. They need someone who can judge them and lead them and get them to that place. That's what they want. And God warns them that power, power is a restless life. That someone who has that power will not produce rest, will only produce pain and restlessness. And the Pharisees at the same time are losing power. They're losing what the little control that they had. And the problem with power primarily when you have power is that you're always having to keep it, you keep it under wraps, keep it under control. You're always going to have to uh, keep it within your grasp. And what we notice with Jesus is that Jesus in all of this, once again, is just strolling into town on a donkey. 
He's not swaying to the praises. He's not defending himself to the, to the Pharisees. He's just strolling in on a donkey. The imagery is, is, is interesting because if you have your Bible in front of you, if you look, if it's in your phone or in your Bible, there's a header to this passage. It's called the triumphal entry. And it's because the entry of Jesus is similar to the entry of kings coming after victory, after war. If you read the Old Testament, when David would come home, King David would come from war, from victory, it was to praises, to shouts. Everybody would meet him at the gates. This is, sim- this is exactly what's happening to Jesus. But Jesus has won no war. But he's coming in triumphantly, it tells us. The irony is, that Jesus isn't entering a city to sit on a throne in triumph. He's coming into a city to get on a cross. Jesus is uh, this idea that the, Pharisees, the, the people look to him for the power that he has and they can't wait for him to be their king. All the things he's going to do, he's going to supplant that idea by laying power down. Jesus, who has whole power, surrenders his power. But he doesn't give it up the way that we think of giving something up. Jesus himself says many times that no one takes his life from him. He lays his life down. He willfully submits himself to others. And if we're honest, this should bother us. Because in this world, we oftentimes see the things that uh, we see success or the things that people have or power as a whole as something that can elevate our circumstance. If we could just get that job, if we could just have that influence, if I could just have that money, I can elevate my circumstance, I can get where I need to go, if I could just have this power. And Jesus, who has all power, gives it up. Who does that? No one in their right mind who had the ability to elevate and change their own circumstances or change the circumstances of others would give that up. No one in their right mind who doesn't need, who doesn't need to navigate the difficult circumstances of life, who doesn't need power to elevate themselves. The reason why we have these longings is because power is fed by a desire to make something of ourselves. Power is fed by a desire to secure and protect the very things we feel will guarantee us peace, rest, success, whatever it is our hearts desire. And so we oftentimes, we worship power because of what we'll gain and we protect it because of what we'll lose. And so important to us, we look at, the, we look at power in this world and we say we need it. We need power to elevate. We need power to, trans, to, to, to change our circumstances. Robert Greene uh, wrote a 1998 best-selling book, The 48 Laws of Power. And I confess, I haven't read the book, but recently I've just been hearing so much about it. My brother read it, and he would tell me, I mean, it's nothing new. My brother always reads books and tells me everything that he he read. But but he would tell me about this book and constantly tell me, you got to read, you got to read this book. And I was looking into Robert Greene, and I found out that Robert Greene, this book came out of his experiences as a Hollywood screenwriter. He was writing, trying to write screenplays for, in Hollywood, and he found that all the executives and, 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 uh, and movie industry uh, leaders all had these dirty tricks and schemes and power plays and dynamics that they would do with one another. And so he thought of this idea, wouldn't it be great, he says, to write a book, you know, in his own words, that would pull the current behind, uh, like the Wizard of Oz and reveal Oz or who he is. That you could see that these people are just trying to play you with these power schemes and dynamics. And so he wrote 48 laws to help people with the aim of conquering, defending yourself, or simply understanding the rules of the game. And there's no rule in that book from what my brothers shared with me and from what I was looking into that says the way to get what you want is to give up power. But that's exactly what Jesus does. The aim is not to give it up, it's to make it work for us, to make power work for us. There's a book that, uh, that I've been reading um, called The Cry of the Soul. 
It's by two doctors, Allender and Longman. And in that book, it's a book about how our deepest emotions reveal deep questions about God. They talk about this desire, this longing for possession. This idea that humans have this desire for something, things we think we need, but it's actually things we want. I'm going to read you what, how they define it. As humans, we have a basic need, minimal amounts of water, a modicum of food, and enough shelter to keep us from freezing to death. We can survive on very little. But the vast majority of humanity wants to do more than simply survive. We desire to live comfortably, even well. We crave a variety of tastes to shake our thirst. We want enough food to expand our stomachs. We want more shelter. We desire bigger and better homes. But necessities aren't all we want. We desire material things as well. Cars, clothes, books, jewelry, ski vacations. Once again, the basic isn't enough. If we have a Timex watch, we want a Rolex. If I drive a Hyundai, I got my eye on a Mercedes. All of us desire money, which in this world makes possessions possible, but not all our desires are for material goods. We want to be with people who know well and who enjoy being with us. We long for close, we long for close fully satisfying relationships. Our desires constantly extend beyond our need, but we live in a world with limited resources and the universe is not equitable. Some people have greater pleasure, greater wealth, greater power and greater joy than others. In short, we're, we are finite and so are our resources. Two words describe the attendant feelings in our desire for possession, envy and jealousy. Longman and Alexander, what they realize is that the reason why we long to secure or protect for ourselves the things that we feel will give us this life, this restless life, is because what we really have is these feelings of envy and jealousy. We look at the world and we see that it's limited in resources. We see other people who have uh, the things that we desire. And they define envy as not just merely wanting possessions, but sometimes wanting the, what comes from the possessions. We see people with joy and happiness and success. And we say, maybe if I had the things they had, I too could have joy, happiness, and success. And they go on to say that envy produces a restless life because you're, there's always someone who has more. And you're always looking to the next person saying, now I need that. You're never actually acquiring the very thing your heart desires. They, use, they talk about jealousy uh, in a way that I had never thought of before, that jealousy is simply having something you want no one to take away from you. But what they say is that sometimes we can falsely believe that we have possessed something that we don't, that we're always feeling that, th that uh, the things that matter to us or that va are valuable are slipping through our fingers, and we're never able to grasp it. And so become, we become jealous and protect, try to protect the very things that we feel would give us that, that joy and that security. And they go on to talk about the reason why we have these, these longings, these feelings of anxiety and envy, and they call it the longing for exclusivity. Interestingly enough, I said at the beginning of this, and the way Russell started this whole sermon series, that it was an exclusive statement Jesus makes, come to me, I will give you rest. And these doctors realize that what we long for is a very, very interesting form of exclusivity. This is what they say, every person longs for exclusivity, a relationship that is single, special, unlike any other relationship on the face of the earth. Jealousy reflects a heart that not only faithfully protects, but exclusively desires. Who will surround me, protect me against all others, passionately pursue me alone rather than any other? We live a great deal of our lives unprotected, misunderstood, and lonely. Even in the best relationships, individuals are still left hungry for someone to comprehend their world and enter their struggle, to embrace them with a passion that seizes them and melts them into a union that will never be broken. What we long for, friends, family, what we long for is Jesus' exclusivity. 
What we long for is someone who would say to us, come to me and I will give you everything you've ever sought after. The reason why we have fear and anxiety and and envy and jealousy when we look at the world and we see the limited resources, power to this person or this person having the things that I desire, this longing, the problem of power, is because what we long is to secure for ourselves that, that feeling that we are that valuable, that loved, and that cherished. And here comes Jesus on a donkey with all power. And what he says to us is that no greater love is there than this, and I laid my life down for you. Jesus offers up to us a way out of the problem of power, that we no longer have to secure for ourselves or protect this desire that we need to make something of ourselves or that we're that valuable or that important. He says, I will give up myself for you. We no longer need to look to others for the things that we seek. We look to Jesus. He gives it up himself willingly. It's so amazing to me to think that Jesus enters into Jerusalem knowing he's going to die. Knowing that the greatest thing he can do is sacrifice his life for others. And it's simply because of love. Because Jesus understands and he prays for his disciples in John chapter 17. He prays for them that they would know the love that him and his father share. Love is what motivates us to pursue the things in this life that matter the most. We've been talking about practices like prayer, the Lectio Divina, and all many practices we've gone over this sermon series. And the one thing that motivates us or should motivate us in these practices is not that if we do them, we'll get something from God, or if we do this, we'll have that peace, but that because we do this, we have God. I pray because I know God listens to me. I read his word because I know he's speaking to me. I come into fellowship and communion because I know he's extending his love and support to me. I am not alone. I have it already. Growing up, I remember uh, a pastor once saying, we don't fight for a position of victory. He says, we fight from one. That the Christian life is one where we're standing already with all that, we've, that God would ever give us, his son on the cross. That we have it all already. Paul would later on go to say in the New Testament that if God gave us his son, what else would he hold from us? We have, we have it all. But oftentimes our hearts are restless and we're longing. But as Augustine once said, our hearts are restless unless they rest in you. I'd like to invite the worship team up. And I just wanna close with this thought. We've been going through all these practices, all these things that we've been encouraging ourselves as a community to, to examine and to do. And I wanna encourage you now as we end this series, as we continue into the celebration, that we would celebrate what we do have, that we're no longer striving for that, uh, that exclusivity, for that someone, for that something that, will, that it will enter into my story, that will take me as I am. We have it already. Jesus. We no longer have to strive for these uh, desires or these plans. We have Jesus. It changes everything when you already have what it is that you think you long for. You can now love fully. You can now forgive fully. You can now experience fully without shame, without doubt, without fear. And so friends, this morning, I wanna close in prayer And I want to invite you to pray with me that we would know that love and that that love would motivate us in all our practices. That as you go into your Lectio Divina this this week, you would would think fully God has something he has to say to me. That when you pray, you would say God is listening right now to me. And when you come into fellowship, you would remember that God is not alone. God is present with me through my community of faith. Would you pray with me? 
God, I thank you this morning. Lord, that you have provided for that longing of our hearts, that longing to be loved beyond measure, that longing to have someone enter into our story who sees us as we are, that longing to know that we are of value. Lord, we pursue many things, oh God. Power shows itself in our life in many forms. We look at jobs, we look at opportunities. If we had that, we say, oh man, my life would be at peace. But we are restless unless we rest in you. Because it's not a thing that will give us that, it's a person. It's you. And so Jesus, I pray that as we enter into our spiritual practices, as we practice our faith, we would practice it from a place of love. That we would know that you took all your power and you laid it down. You took all your power and you surrendered it willfully that we might have you and you alone. Father, I pray that you would meet us, that you would meet us, oh God. Give us a real, real experience of your love, of your presence. That we would pray because you listen, we would read because, because you're speaking. So God, I pray you would meet us, that your way wasn't just to give us practices, your way wasn't just to give us uh, things to do so that we could be productive and have a productive Christian life. No, you, you, you came that we might have you, fellowship with God, a fellowship that can never be broken. The beauty of your love is, God, we don't have to secure it. There's nothing we do to secure it. We don't have to worry about it being lost or being taken. You gave it up willfully, knowing full well who we are. And so, Father, I pray that you'd release us from the problem of power, of desiring the things that we feel can change our circumstances, that can give us that better life. So life isn't life unless you're with it. Life isn't life unless we have you. So, Father, I pray and I thank you this morning for the community present. Pray, Lord, that if there are those who don't know that love, that you would stir that love up within them. That in their hearts they would see the things they're striving for and, and see the restlessness that comes with continual striving and, and work and continually having to, to try to secure and protect these things. And they would see that Jesus comes and lays himself down and says, nothing can separate me from you. Nothing will take me away. Nothing will turn me away. It is love, your love, Jesus, would transform our lives and our hearts. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you didn't sway. Your triumphal entry, O oh God, into Jerusalem was that you were going to come on that cross and lay your life down. So, Father, I pray that we wouldn't see you as some king with power, but we'd see you as a king full of love. You're the prince of peace because you bring peace to our souls. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Would you become the king of our hearts, oh God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
If you're serving communion, I want to go ahead and invite you forward. We're going to come to the table now as we do every Sunday. Really, that was just a powerful message. If the Father has given us everything, what else will he withhold? Nothing. We don't earn it. We don't lose it. It's ours in abundance. So out of that recognition of you don't have to fight for anything, it's already yours. It's already been laid down for you. You can just receive love. This is how we do that. We come to the table and we remember that sacrifice. We remember that gift. It's yours abundantly. A couple directions. Uh, parents, if you'd like to include your children in the communion process, you can go upstairs and check them out from their classroom uh, and come down. If you elect not to do that, parents, which is totally fine, just remember they're up there, so go check them out <laughs> uh, after service. We have an element uh, that is uh, vegan and gluten-free, so, and so everyone should be able to participate. <laughs> um, when you come, we have four stations, two in the back, two in the front, go to whichever one is closest to you. Take the element, dip it into the cup, and then you can receive immediately, or you can go back to your seat and pray, uh, whatever, whatever you need, whatever you feel like God is asking of you. And last but not least, we say that the table is a symbol of our heart's confession, that God has given us everything. He has withheld nothing from us. It is all ours and it's free of cost. And out of that abundance, we respond with thanksgiving. So will you come and join? Thanks again for tuning into this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.